0: Well, amen. If you haven't kept your Bible open to Hebrews chapter 11, I hope you will turn there. If you'll recall, several times throughout this letter, throughout our study thus far, particularly at the end of chapter 10, the writer has been repeatedly warning uh, the reader's who were in the midst of the escalating persecution to not shrink back and not to forsake Christ. He didn't want them to revert back even though they were being tempted to based upon their circumstances and, and, and that persecution coming both from the Roman government and their Jewish friends. And he also warns them the consequences of doing so and how... They needed to remain confident and endure to the end. And he ended chapter 10 on a very positive note. He said, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And he's wanting to encourage them. He, He was wanting to encourage them to say, listen, I know that there are others who are going to shrink back. I know that there are others who are going to forsake Christ, but I don't believe that you're included in that group. I don't believe that of you. You are, you you possess faith. And then he's been spending, chapter 11, we've been in the midst of this for now uh, three or four weeks. And he's been laying out what that faith is, what it looks like. He's defined what faith is. Um, Two weeks ago we saw what it affects. And last week we saw what it elicits. We saw that Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, and the, and the conviction, the confidence of things not seen. He said it's, it's that which um, makes the future present and the unseen visible. We saw that faith affects our thinking, and our standing, and our communion, and our witness. And then we saw last week that it elicits obedience and distinctiveness. It elicits reasonableness and anticipation. And tonight we're going to move from the patriarchs to Moses. Right? We're, going to, we're going to find, we're going to spend time looking at Moses, who the writer spends as much time on the, as, as he does Abraham. And we're going to look at this man who the Jews considered not only a great, but the greatest prophet. The greatest apostle and mediator and deliverer that the nation had ever known. And as we said back in our study of chapter 3, he was the one through whom the law had been given. He was the one who served in the house of God, of which he was a member. And he was faithful in that service, though he wasn't perfect in that service. He's just a man. And by recalling a few of these life moments these significant moments in life, the writer is going to continue to encourage them in the midst of their trials by telling them that their faith also values things. He's going to answer the question, what does faith value? And as I prayed just a minute ago with the children, we're going to see three things. We're going to see that faith values God's promises, faith values Christ's reproach, and faith values Christ's work. And before we begin and look at those three things, I want to remind all of us that it's, this is not tonight, there, there will not be a call to go and be like Moses. Because again, Moses was imperfect. What Moses was a sinful man. But it will be a call to exercise the same faith that he exercised because we possess the same faith that Moses possessed. Our, our focus tonight is not on the person of Moses as much as it is the faith that Moses possessed because... His faith and our faith have that same. Well, it, it's focused on the same promise-keeping God. Right? He he is the one that the, our faith and his faith has as its object God and His promises. And so, it's the same faith that Moses exhibited. It's the same faith that the Hebrew, the Jewish Hebrews had in the New Testament, and it's the same for us. Today, So before we begin, as we always do, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless our time this evening. Well, Father, this is your eternal and infallible and inerrant word. And while the grass withers and the flower fades, we believe that it will endure forever. And so in these moments, by your spirit, would you give us ears to hear and write its truth upon our hearts. Assure us of and strengthen the faith that you've given us and Provide rest for our souls. Use me during our time together as you see fit. And I pray these things in Christ's name and for the sake of his church. Amen and amen.
1: Alright, so what first?
0: Let's jump right in and answer the question, what does faith value? First, faith values God's promises. And it does so over the world's commands or demands. Look at verse 23. It says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, the author begins this highlight reel of Moses' life at his birth, and by doing so, the initial reference to faith is not Moses' faith, but the faith of his parents'. Pharaoh, if you remember, had grown fearful of the Hebrews. Uh, they had been growing in number, and he was worried that if, he was, if uh, Egypt was attacked by an outside enemy, that the Hebrews would jump in and join forces and, of course, overthrow him. So he turned them into slaves. But in verse 12 of Exodus 1, it says, The more they were oppressed, they being the Israelites, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So he had to take it a step farther, and he, not encouraged, but commanded that the Hebrew midwives kill any male child born within a Hebrew home. And the midwives, of course, didn't do that. They feared the Lord more than they feared Pharaoh, and so he had to take it another step further. And at that point, he laid down an edict and commanded all of the people to kill every son that was born to the Hebrews by casting them into the Nile. Well, it's in the midst of this that Moses is born. And his parents hide him so that he wouldn't be killed. And the author says they weren't motivated by fear. They they weren't worried about or, or they didn't fear the king. And so they didn't abide by his edict. And they were actually, the motivation was the beauty of Moses. And that doesn't mean that they just thought Moses was cute. But we know from the historian Josephus, Who helps us understand that he wrote of, in fact, that the birth of Moses was the result of his father being obedient to a vision that he had received from the Lord that said Moses or his son would deliver his people. And he goes on to say that the beauty of Moses was a sign of God's favor. And Calvin agrees, he wrote, The parents of Moses were not induced by his beauty to be touched with pity and save him as men are, common, men are commonly affected. But there was some sort of mark of excellence to come engraved, some excellence to come engraved on the boy, which gave promise of something out of the ordinary for him. Now, and we know Josephus and Calvin are, are not inspired, uh, but the bottom line is there was something about Moses There was something about him, something written all over him that encouraged them to the point that their faith triumphed over any fear they might have had, and they hid him. They ignored the king's commands, and they hid him. And like the midwives, they chose to fear the Lord rather than the king. Well, this faith that they had is something that they passed on to Moses. Look down to verse 27. It says that by faith he left Egypt, he being Moses, not being afraid of the anger of the king. Again, uh, we get a little help from, um, we get a little help from Stephen in Acts 7. He, he says this When he was 40 years old and it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and it, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they didn't understand Moses' parents at some point had informed Moses of who he was in the background concerning his birth. They had kept also before him those promises that God had made to his people as they instructed him as he was was growing. And they instructed him also and told him of, of his role as deliverer of his people. And so at the age of 40, he attempts to step into that role. And he... He thought that somehow that the people would know that that's what he was doing. I've been told I'm the deliverer of my people, and so here's something going on. I'm going to step in, and I'm going to be that deliverer. I'm I'm going to be that leader. But they don't understand. They didn't understand what he was doing, so he left. Now, the Exodus account says he became afraid, but the writer of Hebrews says that it was not the fear of the king. So we have to wonder, you know, what was it? And I I believe that there was a possibility that what Moses was fearing was the consequences of what appeared to be a failure to effectively step into the role of deliverer. This was what he had been prepared to do, and he steps in and it doesn't work. But notice what triumphed over that fear. The fear was faith. He had faith. The writer says he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses' faith was just like Abel's faith and Enoch's faith and Noah's and Abraham's and Isaac's and Jacob's and Joseph's who we looked at over the last couple weeks and even his parents before him. It made the unseen visible. He was looking and seeing that invisible God. His eyes were on the Lord. His parents had taught him of the promises and his role and he had, they had been models of faith for him as he grew. And as a result, Moses valued the same things his parents valued because he had seen it in them and he was assured of the promises and he was convinced of his role and and therefore needed to leave. He needed to leave and he needed to regroup, not because he feared the king at all, but because he needed to prepare to actually step into that role and be used as the deliverer God intended him to be. And brothers and sisters, there are two valuable points for us, even in this first verse tonight. First, we have to realize that over the last 20 years, we've seen a a tremendous, tremendous increase in the number and types of commands and demands that the world is placing, placing upon us as believers and upon the church. We've also seen an increase in the amount of pressure that the world is exerting or exerts upon us to submit and to conform and to comply to its philosophies and ideologies and practices. I firmly believe that the idea of classical tolerance in which we can agree to disagree and still honor one another despite our differences is long gone as far as the world is concerned. It's disappeared. As a matter of fact, the most recent tactic of the world is to demand that we buy into their cause. And not only buy into their cause and the goals of their cause, but the methods that they deem important to accomplish those causes. And if we don't agree with those causes or the methods to achieve those goals that they have, we are automatically Accused of being the exact embodiment of what they are fighting against, regardless of any proof to the contrary. There is good news, however. The good news is that our choices are becoming more and more clear, because the differences are becoming more and more obvious. Therefore, we need to ask ourselves questions like these. Do I value the world and its commands and demands, or do I value God and His promises? Do I value the philosophies and ideologies and practices of a sinful and lost and decaying world, or do we value the truth of God's Word? Do we fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul or fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell? You see, more and more the world is demanding and commanding those who view the world through the lens of the gospel and proclaim the truth of the gospel and the whole counsel of God to be silent. Through, the, through its manipulation and its redefining of terms and even redefining of reality based on experience rather than truth. And then they simultaneously say that silence is compliance, it's ingenious. And so we ask, do we value the worldly contradiction or do we value God and his promises and his word and the call that's been placed upon us to not only walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but to also proclaim the excellencies of him who called us and his gospel, which is the only power unto salvation and the only hope to change hearts and bring about true Its just point one secondly at point one. Notice it's the faith of Moses' parents. It was their teaching and their modeling of their trust in God and the assurance of and their assurance of and conviction of promises that both preserved Moses and equipped him. In other words, the parents passed on their faith. moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas, fellow saints who have entered into covenant here at Christ Church and those who have taken vows at the baptism of baptisms of our little ones. We, we not only have an immense responsibility with our children but we have a profound influence upon them as well. We have a responsibility to teach them To protect them. They need to hear us give a defense for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus. They need to see us worship. They need to see us and hear us forgive and seek forgiveness. They need to see and hear us repent. They need to see us and hear us love and serve one another and our neighbor. And moms and dads, let me encourage you, encourage you to not grow weary in doing good. My mom used to say, wear yourself out until they're 18. Wear yourself out. And then let them go. Right? And remember, moms and dads, that remember the vows you took the day of their baptisms? You promised in humble reliance upon divine grace that you would endeavor to set before them a godly example That you would pray with them, that you would teach them the doctrines of our holy religion, and that you would strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. May that be so vitally important. So faith values God's promises over the world's commands and demands. But it also values Christ's reproach, and it values His reproach over the world's rewards. Look at verse 24. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I jumped ahead and brought verse 23 into point one, or verse 27 into point one with verse 23. So in between those, the 24 and 26, um, what we have is an expansion of what Moses had to do in order to fulfill his call as deliverer within Israel. You know, he was a part of Pharaoh's household. The description is that he was called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And that meant that, well, some actually believe that he was the only male in Pharaoh's household. So they believe that he could have been in line for the throne to be king, to be Pharaoh himself. And so you can imagine the position he was in. He had a name He had a position, he had prestige, he had uh, power and influence and riches. He had at his disposal anything and and everything that he wanted. Of course, he had everything that he needed, but he had everything that he wanted. And if he didn't have it, he could get it or somebody would secure it for him. There was nothing lacking for Moses as he was growing up. And the writer said that, the writer says that he laid out all of his options before him. The language is such that he's calculating a decision. He's, he's making a calculation. So this isn't some fly by the seat of your pants kind of decision. He's thinking through this. He's laying out the pros and the cons. And he determines that choosing to identify with Pharaoh's household Would have been tantamount to apostasy, and he determines that to identify with his Hebrew parents and therefore the the people of God would have been was a much better decision to make. He knew that meant giving up everything that came with his position, being in Pharaoh's household even more than that, he knew that it was going to mean mistreatment and abuse. He was going to go, he was exchanging his position as son in the house of the most powerful person in Egypt to becoming a slave. But his faith gave him the ability to see all that was being offered to him as an Egyptian was nothing more than the pleasures of sin. And all of those things were temporary, they were fleeting, they were unfulfilling, and they would cost him his very soul. And why did he do it? Verse 26 says, he considered the reproach of Christ. The reproach of Christ was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. And there are two reasons he chooses, Moses chooses to identify with the people of God rather than Pharaoh. And the first is this, Moses was looking to Christ. He was looking to Christ, and and he's doing that in a couple of ways. Uh, one is that many believe that the writer is referring to language that we find in Psalm 89, 50 and 51 that says, Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations with which your enemies mock." O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed, and the word anointed there in uh, chapter or Psalm eighty nine is referring to the people of God. But remember, Christ, the designation of Christ also refers to uh, being anointed or means anointed, and so the idea here: some believe that that Moses didn't just choose to be afflicted in and of itself, but he chose to be aff- aff- afflicted as a part of the people of God. He was. It was a sign that he was a part of them. Richard Phillips put it this way, to the mind of faith with the people of God uh, is always the place to be. Where we belong and where we will be so far as we are able to choose. If need be, we will be with the people of God as slaves in Egypt so that we might also be with them as God's royal children in glory. Forever, So he was identifying with the people of God, he was taking on their reproach, and by doing so was taking on Christ's reproach, because the people of God have always been identified with Christ. But then secondly, Moses was actually looking to Christ himself, not just the people of God, but to Jesus himself. We, we know that he was identifying with Christ, uh, the greater prophet, who he wrote about in Deuteronomy 18, and he was identifying with the Savior who told his own disciples that Moses had written about him. So by faith, Moses was looking ahead to that one, that that Savior, that prophet, that priest, that king, that deliverer to whom he himself pointed. Now the second reason he chose to identify with the people of God... Rather than Pharaoh was because he was looking to the reward. We said last week right, that faith elicits anticipation of what's ahead. And here we see Moses doing that. We see Moses looking forward to what was ahead. He knew that the Lord rewards those who earnestly seek him. Moses... Moses made a deliberate and calculated decision based upon faith to turn away from temporal rewards and to to endure the affliction and suffering that was a part of this world and being a part of the people of God. Because his faith made that unseen future visible and present. He was resting in that truth and ultimately Moses did what Christ did. Right? He chose to share in the suffering of the people of God. And Moses knew that whoever loses his life for the sake of Christ will find it. Moses, had he come after Paul, would have quoted Paul. right, And said, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might and may gain Christ. And brothers and sisters, we we look around today and we realize that there are many within the church today that have a different faith than Moses. And we know that because we see the evidence of them seeking a different reward. We see them seeking the world's reward. They There are things that they're striving after that they must have now, and they must enjoy now. And they need a name, and they need a position, and they need prestige, and they need power. And they're more concerned about the temporal and the immediate than they are the spiritual and the eternal. And they compromise the convictions that they once had in order to avoid hardship and mistreatment. They'd rather identify with and be on the side of the world than be at odds with it because of their identity with Christ. They're seeking the world's version of peace and security through the world's methods, through joining movements and partnering with its organizations and parroting its mantras. Despite the fact that those movements and organizations and mantras in many cases are godless, contrary to the gospel, and communicate that the work of Christ is insufficient, if not unnecessary. And so the questions we ask are, do we identify with the people of God despite the potential for mistreatment? Do we embrace the reproach of Christ? Is is He worth losing everything for? Are we striving For an earthly reward or a heavenly reward. Faith values Christ's reproach. Over the world's rewards. Finally. Faith values Christ's work over the world's wisdom. Look at verse 28. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood... So that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So the writer jumps another 40 years in the life of Moses. And he describes the institution of Passover. And his emphasis is on the fact that Moses obeyed and carried out every detail just as the Lord had asked. Even though at that time it was very, very odd. I love this description by Raymond Brown. He says the instructions were strange. The demands were costly, a lamb without blemish. And the ritual unprecedented. But they did precisely as they were told. In simple faith, they kept the Passover. And we ask, well, why did the writer choose this event? As as we're walking through. And does it make sense? And it does. Because in the Exodus we read that the Passover was instituted as a statute forever. And it was to be done year after year after year. So Moses, as he's instituting this, knows by faith that God was going to deliver the people from Egypt during this event through the blood of the Lamb. He was sure of it. He was assured of it. He was convicted that it was going to happen. He knew that the Israelites were going to receive the justice and peace they longed for and that they would be set free. And all he had to go on was God's word. But by faith, he believed it to be true. He did everything the Lord asked. And I believe the writer's goal was to fold. First, if Moses was ultimately looking forward to Christ, as we just said a moment ago, he's looking to Christ. The Jewish Hebrews, he, he's writing to encourage the Jewish Hebrews to, to remain look, looking to Christ as well. I mean, it only makes sense. The writer's saying, don't look back to Moses because Moses himself was looking to Christ. Don't revert back to your Judaism and practice and and fulfill the Passover. Because even Moses knew that the Passover was pointing forward to the Lord Jesus. So remain fixed on Christ. And then secondly, the author, I believe, wanted his original readers to remember and trust in the fact. That despite their current circumstances. And the persecution And the tyranny that they were experiencing. And the injustice that they they were undergoing at the hands of the Romans. Despite all those things, their salvation, despite how odd the world may have thought it was, was only possible through faith in Christ. Who John the Apostle, John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It was His sacrifice and His blood that was shed that purchased their freedom from sin and death. He was the one through whom they would experience ultimate justice and peace. It was through Him that justice and peace was secured. It was foolish, of course, to the world. They they listened and, and, and you know what it was that they were believing in, and they they wrote it off. But he says, it, he, Christ, is the one who brings about salvation. Never forget that. And, and he tells them, regardless of your physical surroundings and circumstances, you can be at peace. That peace comes as you're assured that it was faith in God and his promise and salvation from their bondage to sin and death through the provision of His own Son, that would give them hope to endure. It was in what Christ had done that they would receive that reward that awaited them. And they could rest. Now, you may know where I'm going with this, but the wisdom of the world today Is chanting out loud, no justice, no peace. The wisdom of the world is saying we must strive for justice and eliminate injustice if peace is to be experienced. The problem is, the peace that the world desires is actually internal. And it's not going to come by reforming that which is external. Simply seeking to create the presence of worldly justice and the absence of worldly injustice is not the answer because the law has no power to bring about what it commands. New laws don't change things new people change things changed people change things and that doesn't mean by any stretch it does not mean that we don't strive for justice it doesn't mean that we don't strive to eliminate injustice it doesn't mean we don't strive to live in peace we absolutely should. But true peace will not be determined by what we do, but by embracing what has been done for us. Which is Christ's point in the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, Christ says, kingdom citizens are those who have acknowledged their spiritual bankruptcy. They have mourned their sin. They have humbled themselves before God. They have hungered and thirsted for the righteousness of Christ. They've received the mercy of God. And been purified of their sin. And have been reconciled to God. It's what it means to be a kingdom citizen. And then... Having been reconciled to and being at peace with God, Jesus says we are are therefore and should therefore act as though we are peacemakers. And being a peacemaker is twofold. First, we are to strive as peacemakers to facilitate the same peace that we have experienced with God between others and God. Through the ministry of reconciliation that we have been given to fulfill through the sharing and proclaiming of the gospel. In other words, through evangelism. And second, we're to strive to be at peace with others, which includes seeking reconciliation where needed. But, brothers and sisters, the latter is absolutely dependent upon the former. The latter will not take place without the former. We must be at peace with God if we're going to experience peace with other people. If we don't, we'll simply be crying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. True peace is not going to come through man's own power and his own effort. It's only going to come about as the Lord changes hearts. Because it's only the regenerating work of the Spirit who raises people from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's only by the Spirit that our hearts of stone are replaced with hearts of flesh. It's only the Spirit who grants us the gift of faith and will enable us to reach out and grab a hold of salvation offered to them by Christ, offered to us by Christ, whose work on the cross on behalf of sinners is our only hope for true peace. His work alone is sufficient. It is Him, the Lamb of God. It is to Him that we should look. And the wisdom of the world says many of us need to listen and learn because our experiences are so vastly different that we really don't understand the issues at hand. And listening and learning right, are good disciplines that we should practice. But brothers and sisters, it's our responsibility to speak. We're called to speak. And not on social media. Right? We're called to speak face to face, one on one, and from pulpits. Calmly. Respectfully, lovingly, but matter-of-factly. Our primary responsibility is to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only one in whom and through whom true justice and peace are accomplished and applied. All other efforts will fail if we do not begin there. Brothers and sisters, if we don't do that, nobody else is going to. They're just not. Spread together. Father, may we receive what has been preached with faith and love. May we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Would you now, by your spirit, help us to see and to respond to all that is going on around us in a way that exhibits our trust in you. You who are bringing about your will in us, which is to conform us into the image of Christ. May we live by faith and not by sight. In his name we pray. Amen.